Hello, and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following sermon is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Sunday morning service. To view the entirety of our service, please visit our Facebook page at The Tabernacle Family or our YouTube channel at The Tabernacle Today. Additional information about The Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Somebody must have known that that song was in our wedding. Because <laughs> it was. Grandmothers came down to that song there. You know, one of the things I really loved when I went to Word of Life with the youth group was that uh, the camp down in Hudson, Florida, is how much they do to get kids excited about being in the scriptures and things like that. So I haven't already bought the gift cards, but I want to do something now, and I'll be good to my promise to give a coffee gift card of $10 each to those that can help us do this. So let me see your Bibles if you have them. I need the first person that can get their Bible open to Psalm 72 and come up and slap my hand uh, to, uh, they'll get one of those gift cards. Psalm 72. You got to get up here. Look at that. Ah, George Lunsford, wait, let me see. Is it open? Let me see. Is it open? Okay, Psalm 72. Okay, there it is. Okay. Great. George Lunsford, you surprised me. That's great. I knew, I knew Elaine would be coming. <laughs> All right. How about Psalm 127? Look at Johnny Mitchell, the old ball coach. Okay, great, great. All right. Well, just one more question from there. Who can tell me, come up here and slap my hand, and tell me what... Who wrote both Psalm 72 and Psalm 127? Did you look at it that close when you looked at it in there? <laughs> Johnny's like, I'm going, I'm going. Look, here comes Rosemary. Oh, yeah, almost. Solomon. Solomon wrote them. Yeah, of all the Psalms, you know. Very good. So those are the ones. Did you get that, honey, who I owe gift cards to? <laughs> I can go back and watch the video because I think that one's on me. Um, yeah, Solomon uh, wrote two Psalms, and there they are, 72 and 127, and both have familiar themes related to the book of Ecclesiastes, which, go ahead and turn to Ecclesiastes now, because that's the book that we're in on these Sunday mornings. We're about halfway through our series in Ecclesiastes. And many of you know that one of my favorite preachers that I greatly respect is Chuck Swindoll. A great ministry over the years uh, on radio and TV, but also uh, a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary and served as the president and then the chancellor of that great institution. And he has a wonderful take on the book of Ecclesiastes that compares uh, to being on a Pilgrim's Progress type journey. Now, many of you are aware that Pilgrim's Progress is my favorite book after the Bible. John Bunyan wrote it in the 1600s. He wrote it from jail. And it was about uh, a Christian 
fleeing the wrath to come, fleeing the place they were at and heading toward the celestial city. And the Pilgrim's Progress is his journey through the various things he faced along the way as he was a pilgrim on the pathway. So he goes through the Slough of Despond. He gets to that point where he has to go through Vanity Fair with all the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life and all those things in there. And then um, he's even at a point uh, in Doubting Castle with the giant named Despair coming after him. And along the way, he has visits with other believers who help him and encourage him. And Chuck Swindoll said, when I think about Ecclesiastes, I think about a journey like Pilgrim's Progress, uh, a person trying to find meaning in life and finding and recognizing that it only comes in God. And so on the back of your notes, I actually gave you that map to look at there. And if you go to the bottom of the page there, it shows the seeker of meaning starting out on the path. And you also see winding through and up all the way to the ultimate peak there. Not only that path, that pilgrim's progress pathway, but also the river of life that's coming down from the top to the bottom there. And then we talk about Vanity Valley he's got there and all the ways that the first six chapters talked about how everything is vanity apart from knowing God. It's empty, it's temporary is what the word means. Vapor or smoke, you know, you try to grasp onto it and it's just not there. And in the way of thinking that Swindoll lays this out, the great truths of chapter 3 would have been when the truth seeker's journey crossed over the river of life for the first time, when he talked about how God makes everything beautiful in its time. And then in chapter 5, when he talks about going to God's house and again getting refocused on the things of God under the sun, it'd be another crossing over the river of life. Well, on the map there, do you see number 13? In Swindoll's message series, his 24 message series through Ecclesiastes, message 13 was getting to the other side of the vanity, uh, va the valley of vanities. And even though there's still things to face in this life, he pictures the pilgrim, the one seeking God, the one on the journey, getting to that place where it is settled for them that God is God. They're going to regularly go to God's house and get refocused. And they're committed to God's truth. They still have to live the rest of this life here in under the sun, but they're doing it with all the truths they've gained of the God that is above the sun. And so he mentions in the last part of the, uh, his message series all the ways the last half of Ecclesiastes brings the pilgrim, the seeker, through practical planes. And that's very relevant for us because we've come now to the second half of the book of Ecclesiastes. And we're gonna find that even though Solomon covers some of the same territory he did in the first six chapters, there's a dramatic shift in emphasis in these last six chapters. What did Solomon do in those first six chapters? Well, he brilliantly turned his readers from a self-centered life that leaves God out to a life that's fully seeking God, wants to know him, and wants to experience his plan for our lives. He's got us going to God's house now and looking out for others around us. He's got us cultivating our fields and houses. He's got us viewing life as managing what God has entrusted to us. And in the second half of Ecclesiastes, it's understood, at least I think Solomon wanted us to understand it, that we are now going to learn and apply in every area of our life those same things that we're now committed to, even though life will still be hard, even though sometimes life will still be unpredictable. It'll still throw us curveballs. There'll still be times of depression and discouragement to face. There'll still be times where we're tempted and times we give in and need to ask for forgiveness and all those different things because it is a journey. And sometimes on a journey, you take 
two steps forward and one step back. Sometimes it's one step forward and two steps back. But he's got us in a place now where we understand that we used to reject God and live foolishly, but we don't want to any longer. Uh, now we are committed to fearing God, to revering him, to putting him first, to living wisely for the God we will spend eternity with. And one way to gauge the difference in tone between the first six chapters and the last six chapters is to see the change in occurrences of key words. I actually put this in your notes for you. So in the first six chapters, vanity, emptiness occurs 22 times and wisdom only occurs 15 times. But in these last six chapters, look at the difference. Vanity only eight times, wisdom 27 times. That's quite a difference, isn't it? Both are key words throughout the entire book, but now uh, it really bears down. And before we read uh, through verses 14, uh, verse 14 in chapter 7, I I want you to look for these words, wisdom and better. The Hebrew words for wisdom and better occur more times in chapter 7 than any other chapter in the Old Testament. And so that's key to know as you look at this chapter. It's fitting that Ecclesiastes is in the section of the Old Testament we call the wisdom literature because this is what Solomon's been building for. In many ways, Ecclesiastes is one long illustration of what his daddy David wrote in Psalm 1 about two different ways to live, a life of self that mocks God and walks with sinners and and another life that's planted in the word of God and bears fruit in season. And so he is developing now what it means to live for God's wisdom in a world that rejects it. And so I want to read verses 1 through 14. Solomon writes, a good name is better. Say better. A good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death and the day of birth. It's better, say better, to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better, say better, than laughter. For by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better, say better, for a man or woman to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better, say better. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Better, say better. (laughs) Um, Verse 9, do not, be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the hearts of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Let me read that verse again. You don't have to say better this time. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good. Now here's what's interesting. Verse 11, it's the same word that's translated better the rest of the time. So say better. Wisdom is better with an inheritance and advantage to those who, are, who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. So that man may not find out anything that will be after them. Finishing well. Let's pray. 
Father, I thank you so much for the book of Ecclesiastes. I thank you so much for what we've learned in the first six chapters. And now as we turn the corner and take and apply all that we've learned about commitment to God and putting him first in a world that lives under the sun and for flesh and self too much, so many temporary things, thank you for that we've already learned about all the eternal things that make all the difference in this temporary world. So much is passing away, but what's done for you will never pass away. And we thank you for that, God. And thank you for how in the last half of this book, Solomon really wants to press home on us being wise people living for you in a world that lives for temporary things instead. Lord God, I pray you'll bless us. And I pray that everyone here will seek to be the kind of person who doesn't just start well, but finishes well. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, from that verse, first verse there, I titled it, Wise People Aim to Finish Well. Look at verse 1. It says, a good name is better than precious ointment. And ointment here, it could be translated as olive oil or anointing oil, valuable, valuable, precious oil that they used to cook, they used to anoint and all those different things. They used it, uh, it could describe a perfume also, one word, stretchy, that takes care of all those things. And the second part of verse one says, for such a person the day of death is better than the day of birth. Now I wonder, I don't often think about um, how a good name is better than cologne or perfume. Uh, and maybe you don't either. And so I, I kind of wonder what Solomon has in mind here. And why does he say it that way? Back in Proverbs 22.1, which one of my favorite youth I ever ministered to back in 20 plus years ago. This was her favorite verse, Proverbs 22.1, that says, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor or grace is better than silver or gold. So it says the same thing on the front end. A good name is better, but in that case, than great riches. And in our verse here, he says then ointment, if your translation says it that way, or oil, maybe it does like that. Now, what's interesting is here, I think Solomon knows that the parts of Ecclesiastes are a little heavy to absorb. That's right. He's, talk, he's talked about, you know, not being born and this and that and the other, and some of it gets a little heavy, you know. Uh, so I think Solomon has a little fun here in verse 1 to make the point that he wants to make. You know why I think that? Because the word for name in the Hebrew is Shem, and the name for ointment is Shemin. A good Shem is better than a good Shemin, he says. <laughs> oh. It really would crack you up if you were hearing it in Hebrew. So it's like that. Solomon is saying in a good and funny way, there's nothing more valuable or beautiful than people thinking the right things when they think about your name and about my name. Uh, say your name out loud. Danny Campbell. There it is. Oh, I heard your names. That's great. A good name is better than the best thing you can think of, the most valuable thing you can think of. And we think about reputation. We think about legacy. We think about what people think when they say your name. I wonder if you died today and this week we had to hold your funeral, what would people say about you? What would they think when your name came to their mind? Would they put a little asterisk by it about some horrible sins you've done recently or would they think oh that's the person that's blessed me so much the way they've encouraged me and helped me along the way um, more importantly what would God say about you and your life for those who aren't proud of their sinful past but now are forgiven Christians Ecclesiastes helps us ask the question we ask can we change 
what our own obituary is going to be, what people read about us in the paper or online when they look about our, at our obituary, or when someone stands up at our funeral and gives a eulogy, which means good words about us. Can, if we're, there's things we're not proud of now, can that change before that day comes for us? And I think about the man that read his own obituary in the paper. Maybe you've heard the story. His brother had died, but they mistakenly put his name in and along with it the obituary of all the things he had done, including being the inventor of dynamite. Now, for the most part, we think about dynamite as helpful, clearing uh, mountain rocks so that you can build roads and things like that. But the obituary had it in there that this was the greatest instrument of death that up till that time had ever been created, dynamite. And Noble looked on at that, and he said, I don't want that to be what I'm known for. And so he took some of the money he had gained, and he helped create the Nobel Peace Prize. And so later, when his obituary was written, he was regarded as a philanthropist known for funding and endowing the Nobel Peace Prize as it went along. For the person of faith who has obtained a good name and legacy, the day of their death, Solomon says, is better than the day of their birth because they finished well and went on to their eternal reward. And that's why in Psalm 116.15 it says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. God says, you know what? You've finished there. I want you with me. I'm going to comfort you. And so in the New Testament we learn that for the believer to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's why somebody like Paul could say, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. And Paul in Philippians 1, when he says that, says, now I'd rather go ahead living on a little longer because I want to keep making a difference in the lives of those I love, those I know, those I want to impact for Christ. But if I was to die right now, it would be better because I'd be with the Lord. And Solomon's saying some of those same things here. So Solomon is trying to provoke us to think about such things what it means to have a good name, what it means to finish well so that our name will be regarded in a good way rather than as one who took up space, made the world a worse place, and then died. We want to be known for the right things and have a good name. Now that we revere God, and so Solomon launches from here really through the rest of the book, but especially Solomon, of course, had written over 3,000 Proverbs, wrote most of the book of Proverbs, compiled others toward the end that are so neat to have in there. But Solomon kind of goes from the way he's been, if he's a singer, he's been doing, you know, all these wonderful kinds of songs in chapters one through six, and now he comes back and he's back to Proverbs, which are kind of like quick little raps, you know, with just truth embedded in them and things like that. So he just pops some out here, just like he had in the book of Proverbs, and that's the reason why most Bibles have it uh, indented a little bit differently than what comes before and what comes after. And so he's going to go into some of the better decisions that wise people make, and we can learn so much as we look at these. The first thing he says is in verses 2 through 4, it's better to mourn and think than mock and dismiss. Look at verse 2. Solomon writes, it's better to go to the house of mourning, that's where funerals take place, than to go to the house of feasting where parties take place. Now, why is that? He tells us, for this is the end of all mankind. What is? Death. <laughs> being the person everybody's looking at at a funeral and remembering and saying good things about or lies about or other things about, right? And look what he says here. And the living will lay it to heart. Lay what to heart? What are we supposed to think about when we go to a funeral? And why is it good for us to go to them? Well, we think about the person. 
we remember about their life and what was a good example. And I don't think it's wrong also as we consider our own lives and the rest of our lives to consider, okay, what was a bad example? We're thankful for grace and what's been forgiven, but what do I want to emulate? What do I not want to be like? And these are times that God gives. So in chapter 5, he said it's a good thing when we go to God's house and he taught us when you go there to, to think and to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. So he pictured under the sun going to church to be a regular time to help us refocus on God and God's priorities. And here he's kind of saying the same thing happens at a funeral. Now, in our day, we do everything we can to avoid grief and to avoid thinking about a life and thinking about what happens to us when we die and those things. But Solomon here says, no, this is, this is something that God gives Something that God gives to be another thing to help us stay on track and it's a good thing for us to take the time. I think our Jewish friends are so wise when their practice going all the way back to Genesis 50 is to sit Shiva. Shiva means seven and for seven days they say we're going to take the time to do not much of anything else but to think about the person, think about God, think about the plan that God has for lives to grieve appropriately, to remember, to get it out and then go on. I, I, I am disturbed, my friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm disturbed at how little time is being spent in grief in these days. You've seen it. Sometimes there's not even a funeral. And I'm not trying to step on any toes here, but there's, there's sometimes not even any kind of remembrance service whatsoever. And I know a lot of people that aren't right with the Lord and don't know the Lord, they don't want to go to a funeral at all because they know, oh no, the preacher might preach about eternal things in there and I don't want to hear that. I don't want to be bothered with that. I'd rather go to a party, I'd rather go get drunk and remember that person in my way than spend the time remembering the person and thinking about eternal things and how thinking that my own day of death is coming too. That's what Solomon has in mind by here. Laying it to heart. Laying it to heart. Of course, funerals make us think about whether we have peace with God. Uh, and and are, are we ready for our own deaths? A sad heart that grieves well and makes life-changing decisions will lead to glad hearts in the end because we'll ourselves be ready for that day of death. And I hope you take that to heart, those of you who will be planning funerals. There needs to be a time to remember there needs to be a time to celebrate the life. There needs to be a time to comfort the family. And there needs to be a time to share the gospel so each of us will be ready as well. And yet we're living in days where that gets shunned too often. And of course you want to honor people's wishes. And I know some of you were told, well, don't do anything for me. We'll talk about that. Because funerals aren't just for the one who is passed. They are for the living to have a time to be ready for their own date with death coming it's appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. Now, this doesn't mean there's not a time to laugh. Ecclesiastes 3 already told us that. It told us there's a time to laugh, and there's a time to mourn. There's a time for this, and a time for that. Solomon's putting things in perspective here. When it's a time to grieve, take the time to grieve and learn from that. And so he says, it's better to enter into that than to mock it off, to laugh it off. And you perhaps know some people just laughing it off in these days, doing everything they can to avoid thinking about it, but we need to think about it. Well, heavy stuff, huh? I'm glad he started with that Shem and Shemin thing, aren't you? Still laughing about that one, aren't you? Well, verses five and six. It's better to be rebuked by godly people than to be praised by fools. 
Come get us, Solomon. Come get us. Verse 5 says, it's better to hear the rebuke of the wise than the song of fools. And then he says in verse 6, just like crackling thorns make a fire get big for a moment, you know, but don't provide lasting warmth. It just burns and then gone, but a fire provides lasting warmth. Fools will celebrate your sins, but won't give you good counsel. Anybody ever been around people like that? They'll celebrate when you party with them, when you sin with them, when you make mistakes with them. But they won't give you good counsel. In fact, misery loves company and they'll give you some of the same bad advice they've been receiving and, and going on with. These days, when a godly person tells someone they love what they need to hear, what happens? The fool goes online and posts about how awful it was to hear a call to repentance. And all their fellow fools chime in like crackling thorns. You've seen it and I've seen it. Oh, this person said I should repent of that. This person said I shouldn't talk like that. This person said I shouldn't curse like that. Aren't they terrible for telling me that? Aren't they terrible for having standards? Aren't they terrible for telling me I can do better than I've done? And people just chime in. Oh, I can't believe. I bet that triggered you that that person said those harsh and unkind words to you. Many times they may have been hard to hear but the person really was speaking the truth in love. And Solomon says, you're a fool not to listen to people that love God and care about you, tell you things you don't want to hear. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. The people that mock your godly advisors won't be the ones. They won't be the one that experienced the built-in consequences of your sins. You will. And if you ever really turn to God, you'll be thankful for people that tell you what you need to hear. And I hope you are being approachable like that for people to tell you the things that you don't want to hear, but that you need to hear. Faithful are the wounds of friends. I remember a fellow one time, and it's one of the biggest compliments I ever got. He said, Danny, he said, everybody around me was telling me what I wanted to hear. You told me what I needed to hear. And I so resented you in the moment for doing that but now I want to say thank you because I could tell you came from a place of love and I needed to hear it and I wish I'd acted on it sooner and you know if you've got a godly friend like that who'll tell you what you need to hear instead of what you want to hear and you go back to them and say thank you they won't say well I told you so if they did they're the wrong kind of person they'll just love you and help you go from where you are to where God wants you to be I wonder if there's somebody out there and as you hear this message online or in person here and you thought, you know what? I owe them an apology because they loved me enough to tell me the truth and I shook my fist at them and I shook my fist at heaven and I need to go back to them and saying thank you for loving me enough to tell me what I didn't want to hear at the time. It's better. Verses 7 and 8, it's better to think about where you're going than where you came from. And I love verse 8. It says, better is the end of a thing than the beginning. Some of us come from awful backgrounds. But that doesn't define us. Where we are going defines every true believer. You know, I think about how some of you have experienced horrendous things and you go, oh, I, I'm just glad, glad to be in Christ. I'm glad to be in a church family and I, I, I really, I'm so ashamed of the past and all those things that, that I'll just kind of, uh, you know, sit far away from everybody else and I'm just happy to be here, but I could never do great things for the Lord. Don't you believe that lie? 
Because what defines every true believer in here wasn't whether their past was a great one or a poor one. It's that we're on the way to heaven. We're going there and we're all going to be there. And so I love how he says this. Better is the end of a thing than the beginning. You said, I got a lousy start. Well, it's not about the start you got. It's about where you're going. And it's so neat. We're going to heaven. We're going to spend eternity with God. In his presence, you know what we're told awaits us? Pleasures forevermore. Pleasures forevermore at his right hand. So when you choose to... Uh, say yes to God and not go into an area of sinful pleasure now for God's greater purposes, you're, you're actually acting in your own best interest and your own best eternal pleasures to come, which is great. Sometimes when we think about how hard we had it in the past, see if this is you. Satan gets up in our mind and, and he says, uh, you know, because of how hard you had it, it's okay for you to take a shortcut. It's okay for you to take a shortcut, like a bribe. See, that's mentioned in verse 7. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. But verse 8, better is the end of a thing than its beginning. Satan tells us lies like, you know, everybody's doing it in this age. So because you came from such a poor beginning, it's okay for you to do it because everybody does it. Or uh, after all you've been through, you deserve it. And we start believing those lies. And then in sin, sinful pride... We act in that sin, it ruins our testimony, it corrupts our hearts. In verse 8, Solomon tells us those living for the end, eternity with God, patiently endure rather than taking those sinful shortcuts. And so, where we're going is more important than where we've been. Now, some of you say, well, gosh, you know, I didn't have a bad beginning, I had a great beginning. In fact, I had many, many good years before we ever got to the year that we're in now, and that's where the next thing comes in. It's better to serve God in the present than to live in the past. Look at verse 9. <laughs> he says, be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the hearts of fools. Anybody here got a quick temper? Anybody here angry about what you see on the news and the way things are going today? Anybody here do an awful lot of complaining and contrasting it with the way things used to be in the country, in the church, and those things? Hey, we can all be sympathetic to that because we can learn from the past. But look at verse 10. Say not, why were the former days better than these? And then Solomon slays us. If this fits you at all, and it fits me a good deal, <laughs> Solomon slays us. By saying that question doesn't come from a place of wisdom. Do you see that there in verse uh, 10? Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it's not from wisdom that you ask this. I just want that verse to settle in for a minute. If you're pining in your mind for old days and the way things used to be, Solomon says you're not being wise if you are fixated on the past and want everything in the present to be like it was in the past. It's not wrong to be thankful for the past. It's not wrong to learn from the past. But it is wrong to be stuck in the past. And I think that's what Solomon's addressing here. People that are stuck in the past foolishly miss present opportunities to serve God. Their idealization of the past can turn into idolatry. Their backward focus is unwise and discourages those God is using in the present. What an amazing statement. Say not. Why were the former days better than these? For it's not from wisdom that you ask this. Now we can be sympathetic to as we age, we can't physically do the same things we once did before. 
And so for some of us say, you know, why, why can't I, uh, you know, uh, do that volunteer work like I used to that involves strenuous labor? And, and there's something to that, but that doesn't help you find your niche of service for today. Um, why aren't things like they were then? Well, there's opportunities today, right? As we age and face health difficulties, we cannot physically do the same things for Jesus that we once did, but there is always some type of present ministry for all believers until God calls us to in presence, his presence, and that includes prayer and encouragement. My goodness, it does. And I, I'm so encouraged by senior saints that I've heard that have done the math and they've said, you know, you look at a lot of Christians in their testimony and for many of them, their greatest decade of service is in their 60s and their second greatest is in their 70s. As somebody that's in their, his 50s and I've looked back on ministering in my 40s and 30s and 20s, that makes me excited because there's new opportunities to serve the Lord. And sometimes so much of what we did when we were younger, we did in the flesh that now we've got a more spiritual framework in the present. And we've been seasoned by good choices and bad choices, and so we, we have in wisdom more to offer than the folly of just rushing in and doing the dumb thing, the sinful thing. And so Solomon's trying to harness, he's trying to harness the energy of all those that are older in the faith. And he's saying, you know what? Don't look back and say, why can't things be like they used to be? Enter into today. Reach those children. Reach those youth. Reach those uh, families around you. Reach your neighborhoods. I'm so encouraged because, you know, there's not a church in our area, including the tabernacle, that wouldn't double in size in the next year if everybody just reached one person. Not a hundred each. One. One. Do you have that one that you're praying for, that you're encouraging and hoping to invite to church, invite to one of the smaller groups that children have and youth have, and like a WANA or youth group or, 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 or forever young for the older ones or men's women ministry and women's ministry and those things, all those extra things we do that adorn the ministry. Are you thinking about what you can do today or do you come each Sunday just to evaluate whether they're doing anything now? whether they're making it happen now like it did in the past. It's on each of us, isn't it? It's worth looking at again. Say not, why were the former days better? For it's not from wisdom that you say this. God isn't done with you yet, amen? He's got things for you to do right now to reach those around you. He has more he wants you to do for him before he calls you home. Stay forever young in your heart by looking to see where God's at work around you and join him in what he's doing. It's better, verse 11 and 12, it's better to be protected through wise choices than rely on money. <laughs> in, in verse 11, I've already told you, wisdom is good, but the word could be translated better. Wisdom's better with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. And it may even be that he intends to say wisdom is better than inheritance because in verse 12 he says, for the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Oh, it's good to have an inheritance. It's good to have money uh, for rainy days and that can protect us during difficult days. 
But as we saw last time, we can also develop an idolatrous love of money that keeps us from trusting God and stewarding it as God's intends. And some people really worry about whether they have enough money for retirement in the hard last days of life, and it's such a fixation for them, they miss opportunities to serve, and they miss opportunities to grow wiser, and they make foolish decisions to try to compound their money before it's too late. Think about the, all the money you've spent over the years buying that weekly lottery ticket, you know, that could have gone to regular uh, savings or investments in ministry or other things. And uh, maybe one day it'll all come in for you, but I've seen a lot of people that spend a lot more money over time buying that lottery ticket, you know, than got, ever gotten payout. And maybe you'll be the one that gets it paid out, who knows. But that's part of what Solomon's addressing here. What's real and always help you wisdom versus that which is fleeting. Going to Caesars is not a good retirement plan. Solomon here reminds us that trusting God and making godly decisions is an even more important protection for God's children than money. Think about it. Money can be lost. Money can be stolen. Inflation can cut the value of money dramatically as it's doing right now. But God will take care of his saints in every generation and for all eternity. Amen? Wisdom preserves. So trust in him with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. One last better in these first 14 verses. It's better to live and lead with a God-given limp than to resent God. You say, well, Danny, what do you have in mind there? Well, look at verse 13. He says, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? And the answer is nobody can, right? If God bends something up in your life, it's going to be bent. If God changes the direction, you, you can fight against it all you want. But if God wants to get your intention, he has more ways at his disposal to make it happen than you have to fight it off. Have you ever seen a strong man bend an iron bar? Uh, I've seen that happen before. I think, we, have we ever had the power team here or something like that? You know, they do things like strong man and bend it. And then they ask a child to come up and try to bend it back. And the child strains but can't do it. And then one of the other strong men takes it and bends it back, you know. God is stronger than the strongest of men. Well, what does Solomon have in mind here? He tells us in verse 14, and the word is adversity. Adversity that God both allows and brings into our life. So in verse 14, he says, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. We all like days of prosperity. But in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. So there's a certain amount of trust we need to exercise in God because he's going to bring prosperity to bless us. He's going to bring adversity to grow us. And if all we ever had was prosperity, we'd be like what happens when there's all sunshine without rain. We'd dry up. And if all we ever had was uh, rain without sunshine, then there's going to be flooding all the time, right? So if all we had was adversity. So God orders our lives to give us a mixture of experiences and of course, we won't have to worry about that one day when we're in heaven and later on a new earth. But in this sin-saturated world, you're going to make sinful choices. Others are going to make sinful choices toward you. Sin is in the world going all the way back to Adam and Eve. That's affected the gene pool and everything else. And so God is like the master chess player. We're playing checkers, thinking one move. God's like the master chess player. He sees all the things and he moves things around for what will make us think about him and walk with him. When we can't understand what God is doing, we need to remember that God makes everything beautiful in his time. 
still love that verse from Ecclesiastes 3.11. So to get us ready for eternity in this sin-saturated world, God uses days of adversity. I can't help but think about one of my favorite passages, Genesis 32. You guys know I like pro wrestling, I like prep wrestling, I just like wrestling, you know. Um, Proud Jacob back in Genesis 32 knew God, but he had always relied on his own strength. He'd always relied on his own smarts, and then he was getting a little older. And he had spent years of frustration living in the flesh rather than living by faith. Now, he knew God. And he was a recipient of the plan of God, the Abrahamic covenant, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And he knew that and he'd had prophecies prophesied over him. And yet he had gotten uh, years of fleshly ramifications for sinful decisions. And he finally made the decision to obey God and move his family back to the promised land. And you know that decisions for God are often put to the test and so Jacob wound up having one of the biggest tests of his life as he was going back to the promised land. He heard that his brother Esau was coming to meet him. And Esau, what did he promise to do the last time? What did he say, I will do this if I ever see my brother again? I'll kill him. I'll kill him. He stole my blessing. He stole my birthright. I'll kill him. And Jacob remembered that. So when he heard Esau was coming to meet him, what did he do? He slipped back into frantic flesh mode. Any of you ever make decisions in frantic flesh mode? This has to happen and I don't know what to do, so I'll just, I'll just go into frantic flesh mode. And as long as uh, I, I get to the other side, I'll just ask God for forgiveness later on if I do things to, uh, that are sin in his eyes. Frantic flesh mode. Abraham or Jacob kind of went into frantic flesh mode. Flesh mode. Jacob didn't have time for a wrestling match with God, but that's exactly what he got in Genesis chapter 32. Jacob wrestled all night with a man, and who was the man really? It looks like it was Jesus, uh, uh, Christophany, an Old Testament appearance of Jesus, wrestling with Jacob all night long. What a thing to ponder. And what happened? God wrestled Jacob's hip right out of socket, but Jacob wouldn't let go. God loves people that just won't let go when they have an encounter with him. And uh, he said, I won't let you go until you bless me. I have a feeling you're somebody important spiritually speaking. And I don't even know what that means. Are you an angel? Are you God and Abad? Whatever you are, I won't let you go till you bless me. And so Jacob hung on even though God broke his hip. After his wrestling match with God in Genesis 32, Jacob's name was changed to Israel And his most faithful service for God followed. And he finished well. Much better than he started, he finished well. But he walked with that limp God gave him for the rest of his life. In that time of adversity, in that wrestling match with God, Jacob didn't come out physically better off than when he went into that moment. But he was spiritually the best he'd ever been. That physical limp stayed with him the rest of his life, but it was also a reminder that he'd met with God and God had won. And now he was more desirous of doing God's will than what he thought was a good idea. For the most part, frantic flesh mode was less in Jacob's life and trusting God was more in Jacob's life. And that's when the name change to Israel happened. You may have something that's created an emotional limp, a mental limp for the rest of your life, but you too could testify 
that what you wouldn't want to have experienced, that adversity coming in, actually was used by God to be one of the best things that ever happened to you. Here's the point. We've said before, God brings things into our lives that we wish were not part of our testimony. We don't view them as things of prosperity. We view them as days of adversity. Whether that's the grieving of a death, you expected that spouse or that child or that loved one to be here a lot longer than they were. An unwanted divorce when you finally found out the truth about the other person and how dishonest they were and cheating on you or whatever. Some cancer diagnosis, some health condition faced, some traumatic accident, having a prodigal child that you wish was serving the Lord instead of in frantic flesh mode all the time and acting, making some of the same foolish decisions we see in the passage here. You didn't want it to be part of your testimony, but it's become part of your testimony. And what God's saying is, these are all temporary moments compared to eternity with me where there won't be this kind of limping and pain ever again. But I have allowed this and even used some of these things in your life to get you to where you are today, fully relying on me, trusting me. And if you will let me, even though some of these things are so painful you to think about and so noticeable to others, embarrassingly noticeable to others like Jacob's limp the rest of his days, that can be the platform for some of your greatest moments of encouraging and witnessing to others because there are others that are going through some of the same things and they need a godly perspective on those things rather than just, well, doesn't life stink all the time and then you die? And you come in there and people see that adversity and you've made it through and in that moment you're praising God and you're seeking him and you're sharing with others. You guys know the truth, don't you? When, when, uh, when, when times are going good, everybody's kind of doing good. You don't have to persevere through great moments like a joyful embrace with your spouse. You don't need to persevere when your team wins the big game. But when the loss comes, when the pain comes, when the adversity comes, when the limp comes, then the world's watching and other Christians are watching to see what will you do? Will you practice what you preach now? Or now that your adversity comes, are you throwing in the towel and saying, God's not worth it? Solomon's got us in some pretty deep waters here. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has crooked? But in the day of prosperity, be joyful. When the day of adversity comes, consider God has made the one as the well as the other. And he still loves you. He still has a purpose and plan for you. And if you'll let him, what you consider one of the worst things to ever happen might be the area of your greatest usefulness for him. So we can respond to our adversity in one of two ways. Resent God for letting it come into our lives and foolishly live in despair. Or we can trust God, lead with a limp, and wisely finish well. And that's what I'm praying for you and I'm praying for me. Won't you bow your heads? Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. 
To learn more about The Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today.